This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 297. Hey, big shout out to the Drury Hotel Company. They are a longtime faithful sponsor since we started the show, actually, back in 2010. It really is a top-notch place. I've stayed in probably two dozen of their locations, just traveling the country, going to various marathons. The famous saying about the Drury is that the extras are not extra, which means you get free food in the evening and a huge breakfast in the morning that comes with your stay. It's, it's magical. Check them out, the Drury Hotels. And we have a special link on our website where you can save 15% off the cost of your room. Just head over to MarathonTrainingAcademy.com and look for our partner, the Drury Hotel Company. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where it's all about empowering you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with author Matt Futterman from the New York Times about his newest book, Running to the Edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlock the secrets of speed. And in the quick tip segment, we've got a mantra for getting through those later tough miles in a marathon. And of course, you can get more help and support inside the academy and through MTA coaching services. Learn all about that when you visit us at MarathonTrainAcademy.com. So Angie, how has your running been going lately? It's been going great. Yeah, I'm gearing up for the Hartford Marathon in just a little over two weeks and feeling strong and hopeful that I'll have a great race there. Well, I did my long run yesterday out on the Appalachian Trail, which is near a house. And something that happens to me out there on the trail without fail, it's kind of getting annoying, is I'll be running by people because there's folks out there that are hiking and inevitably I will spook them when I come up on them. Oh, no. <laughs> And this one guy, I was coming down the mountain and he was lumbering along. He had a big pack on his back and I kind of made my throat clearing sound to let him know I was coming. Good ways back, I'm like, <clears throat> and usually when I do that, people will hear me and then they'll, they'll stop and they'll look behind them or they'll move over. So nope, he just keeps walking. So I do it again. <clears throat> you need to say, I'm behind you or something like a little bit more. That scares people too. Like I'll say, hello, and I'll just spook folks and they'll jump. <laughs> I think people are already easily spooked when they're out walking in the woods anyway. So <laughs> they're not expecting that. I'm getting closer to this guy and there's a little bend in the trail. And I think I'll just go up high and go around him and maybe he'll just see me or hear me. He'll think he's about to be attacked by a bear. <laughs> I know. So I get closer to him and he turns and catches me in the periphery of his vision and jumps out of his skin. Oh, no. <laughs> it was bad. He had headphones in, ah. so he, he couldn't hear me coming. And then, boom, I'm just right there up on him. And just, I've scared a lot of people out there accidentally, and that was the probably the best the best one. I think you better brush up on your CPR. You could give one of these people a heart attack. <laughs> you need to start, like, blowing a whistle as you get close to, like, tweet, tweet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. To break through the fog or something. So big news out of the running world. We have a new world record in the half marathon. That's right. Jeffrey Camerar set a new half marathon world record at the Copenhagen half marathon with a time of 58 minutes and one second. He took 17 seconds off the previous record. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, I know what effort it takes to run a sub two hour half marathon. I was just thinking that, you know, yeah. and like to be over an hour faster, it's, it's mind blowing. So yeah, congratulations to him. And also, the Boston Marathon selection process just got over with. How did it look this year? Well, of course, for the 2020 edition of the race, they took five minutes off 
for the qualifying time. So it's five minutes harder to get in to address issues of the previous few years that many, many, many runners were not getting in with their qualifying times. So they announced that the field size for 2020 will be 31,500 runners. They received over 27,000 qualifier submissions, and they were able to accept 24,127 athletes. And the time needed below the qualifying standard was one minute and 39 seconds. It's not bad. So yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely better than it was last year, where I think over 7,000 people were shut out. I think so this year was only around 3,000 who didn't get in. But we'd like to congratulate Debbie and Luke from the Academy. They'll be running the 124th edition of the Boston Marathon in 2020. So that's super exciting. Yeah. And also huge congrats to Neil, who was a client of coach Steve Walden, one of our coaches here. He had a BQ time of 30205, which was a PR for him. That's incredibly fast. That is amazing. So what else is going on out there in MTA land, Angie? This note comes in from Connie. She says, the Equinox half was the most beautiful event that I've ever run. I got a new half marathon PR of two hours, 28 minutes, and 52 seconds. I live at sea level, and the event started at about 8,000 feet, so I'm super jazzed. All right. Well, that's Equinox half in Colorado. Congrats, Connie, on the awesome new PR. Yeah, I can't imagine getting a PR at 8,000 feet after coming from sea level. That's super. (laughs) (laughs) She must have been having a lot of fun. And this note comes from Inakshi. She says, Hi, MTA Land. I recently finished my first marathon at the Cape Town Marathon with a time of 5 hours and 57 minutes. Huge thanks to Coach Chris for coaching me through this. I have so many thoughts, but the most important thing I wanted to share is this. Coach Chris knows I was mostly worried about the last 10 kilometers. After every long run, I would tell him this was great, but I don't know if I can do it for 10 more kilometers. The Friday before, I read a chapter from one of the books that Coach Chris mentioned, Brain Training for Runners. The first sentence was, discomfort is a key part of long-distance running. The rest of the chapter was about Steve Prefontaine and Alberto Salazar, but honestly, it was like that first sentence was the only thing I heard. During the race, especially at the end, this is all I thought about. Anytime I felt comfortable, I said, this is wrong. I should feel more uncomfortable, and I just went for it. I know this seems weird since my time was so comfortable, but it was a big deal for me. She says, one more thing. I was mildly concerned by the fact that the London Marathon was not able to cater to the back of the pack runners with aid stations. But these volunteers and aid stations were amazing. I don't understand how they were so enthusiastic by the time I came, which was a long time after they showed up. So huge shout out to everyone who volunteers. One of them also called me young lady at some point, which since I turned 40 this year was exactly what I needed to hear at the 36 kilometer point. All right. And that comes from Manakshi. Congrats on running your first marathon. It's great to hear about how you dealt with the uh, the doubts and fears, which is common for everyone training for the first marathon. And I got to say, Angie, that book that Coach Chris recommended, I have not even heard of yet. Brain Training for Runners. I got to go look that up. That's right. The mental part of training is just as important as the physical part. All right. Well, big congrats to all of you out there taking action in your goals. Maybe you're training for your first marathon and going through some of those, you know, low moments where you're wondering, can I really do this? We're here to tell you, yes, you can. We've seen thousands of people train for the first marathon and run it successfully. So just keep putting in the work and believing yourself. In just a moment, we're going to play our conversation with Matthew Futterman. Before we do that, we'd like to give a shout out to our podcast friend, 
Tina Muir, host of the Running For Real podcast. I know it's hard to survive in between episodes of the MTA podcast. That's why you should go over and subscribe to Tina Muir's Running For Real. She's got a lot of great guests on her show, and she's also got some special stuff going on here in the near future, like a live episode from the New York City Marathon. And she will also be at the California International Marathon in Sacramento guiding a visually impaired athlete. And she's actually doing a series right now called Beyond Running. It's eight episodes released every Monday covering topics that are a lot of times brushed under the carpet or not really covered on running podcasts. Topics like anxiety disorders, visual impairments, suicide, running with disabilities, asthma, miscarriage, and so forth. So again, the show is called Running For Real. If you enjoy this podcast, I know you'll love Tina's as well. In fact, we've been a guest on her show numerous times, and she's become a good friend of ours. So yeah, check her out. And also, you can find her at tinamir.com. All right, well, in this interview, you guys are going to hear a walkthrough history of the running greats and how the science of training really developed not that long ago. His book is one of those books that when you read about these athletes and the work that they're putting in, just the the gusto that they run with, you finish a chapter and you're like, man, I got to go run. <laughs> Did it have that effect on you? Oh, yeah. It was very inspiring. And it's also a great look back at some history that, you know, we don't think about every day. We kind of take for granted that the way we know things, the training ideas, maybe the equipment, uh, a lot of the ideas that are out there right now have always been, but it wasn't the case just a couple decades ago. Exactly. So the subtitle of the book is A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. And you're going to be hearing who that guru is. Spoiler alert. It is uh, Coach Bob Larson. He is probably best known for being Meb Kofleski's coach. And by way of a little context, you're going to hear about the Humul Toads. That was a cross-country team that Coach Bob uh, led to a national championship. Really colorful characters. And you'll hear about Steve Prefontaine. Uh, Steve Prefontaine, of course, was this iconic figure in the 1970s, represented the U.S. in the Olympics. If you've seen pictures of him, he's, he's like running at full speed, you know, like he, ne he didn't know how to go slow. And wind in his hair, big 1970s mustache. He was like the face of running, distance running, very inspirational figure. Like rock star status. And unfortunately, he was killed in a car accident at a very young age, and yeah. it was a huge blow for the running community. You'll also hear about Arthur Lydiard. Um, he was a coach in New Zealand, cutting edge, very influential coach. His techniques were actually studied by Bob Larson. Of course, Larson went a little bit different path. You'll also hear about Alberto Salazar, who is the head coach at the Nike Running Project, right, Angie? That's right. He was a Cuban-American distance runner. Um, in the early 80s, who had a lot of success and unfortunately dealt with a lot of injury. And so he kind of ended up, you know, dropping off before his peak, probably. And it was kind of right after that point where American distance running went into a bit of a slump. And you will also hear us talk about Elliot Kipchoge, who, of course, is the fastest marathoner in history. And he will be trying for another sub two marathon attempt uh, in October. Okay, so a little bit of setup there. Here's our conversation with the author of Running to the Edge. Matt Futterman is the sports editor at the New York Times. He's also worked for the Wall Street Journal. He's a runner himself and lives in New York City. And the book definitely is a fun read. So here's our conversation with Matthew Futterman. Well on my way, well on my way. All 
All right, we're on the podcast now with Matthew Futterman, author of the book Running to the Edge. Matthew, great to have you on the MTA podcast. Welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So take us back. Um, how did you get interested in this crazy world of long distance running? Well, there's a couple answers to that. Uh, the first is when I was 10 years old and it was 1979 and uh, my town in suburban New York decided like a lot of towns to have a five mile race. It was the beginning of the running boom. Hmm. And my brothers and I, I'm the youngest of three brothers. We all decided that we were going to, we were going to sign up for the race. So we did. And uh, it rained like hell that morning. And my and it rained out my soccer game in the middle of the game, actually. And I got home because I wasn't going to be able to run because my soccer team in the meantime, in between signing up for the race and the start of the race, my soccer team had made the playoffs. And I got home and, my, and the car was just pulling out of the driveway. And uh, I jumped in and went to the start line with my brothers and my parents. And it was very fortunate that I had the soccer game that day because my mother, because uh, this was the 70s and no one knew very much, my mother thought everybody needed to have a big breakfast before they <laughs> ran a five-mile race. So she saddled my brothers with pancakes. And my oldest brother, I, I, I kind of blew him away. I finished, I, I ran a 40-15 in that race. I'll never forget it. <laughs> um, I beat my brother, who's four years older than me, just got nipped by my brother, who's two years older than me in the last mile. Uh, but that was a good day. And I, I do remember just finishing that race and not being tired. And in a strange way that that you know, we, we get confidence from performances, I never really remember being afraid of a distance after that day. Hmm. Uh, no matter what it was, I always sort of had this confidence. Well, yeah, well, I ran five miles when I was 10. So sure, I'll be able to do this. I mean, I've never gone longer than 26. And I'm a little afraid of going longer than 26. But uh, at some point, I'll probably tackle it. And I, and I do think that, that that early confidence helped helped me a lot. So that's how I got into it early on. You know, ran a, ran a little bit in high school, uh, ran cross country, was not particularly fast, was like the seventh guy on the team when the seventh <laughs> guy was sick. Yeah, I've been running every day since I was probably around 16, 17 years old. Hmm. And it just became a part of my routine. And I got completely hooked on it that way doing races in the rain that's kind of a theme of your yeah. running life too because you did the 2018 boston marathon yeah i have no maybe that's you know sort of stamped into my into my dna at this point as well that you know i don't, I don't get too worried when it rains that i do i do like to run in the rain for the most part uh <laughs> that 2018 boston you know 20 mile yeah. an hour headwind 37 degrees and that kind of rain. I don't. I don't think I would choose to do that again. Although I did have my fastest Boston Marathon that day, so go figure. Wow, okay. you're just desperate to get out of the the weather, right? <laughs> well, I think I was just so cold. And then actually, the counter, the completely counterintuitive thing is at 10 miles, I realized I was going way too fast, especially given the way the wind was. And I turned off my watch. And I said, you know, you're being, you're a complete idiot. You're going to collapse if you keep trying to go this fast. And I turned off my watch and I stopped thinking about the time. And I just told myself, just go, you know, go find the finish line. And, and I think not worrying about it 
took a huge weight off my shoulders. And I think that was a huge help. And there's a yeah. there's a larger lesson there that I, I'm trying to relearn over and over again and <laughs> I struggle with it. <laughs> One thing I really love about the book is that you do weave your own personal running story throughout it. And I think it makes it super relatable, you know, for all those of us who chase PRs or possibly that, that Boston qualifying time. Well, it's a very relatable sport in that way. And it, and I'd argue that it's unique. Uh, I've covered just about every sport there is. And I would never talk with Roger Federer about, you know, my struggles returning a serve or something like that. <laughs> because he would laugh at me and wouldn't even engage on it. Whereas it's completely normal for me to talk with Meb or Dina Castor or Alexi Pappas or any number of top marathoners about our running experiences, our training experiences. It, it's just a totally relatable thing. It probably has something to do with the fact that we all line up on the same starting line in a lot of races. Obviously, I'm not running the, the, the 1500 in the Olympics anytime soon. <laughs> But Abdi Abdurrahman said to me once when I was sort of apologizing for discussing it with him, he said, uh, said, hey, man, we all experience the same pain. We just experience it at different times, uh, which mm. I thought was really a, a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, that, that is a great point. So let's get into the book here. Who is this mysterious guru that unlocked the mysteries of speed? Uh, well, Bob Larson, who if anyone knows him, they might know him as Meb Kifleski's coach. I think probably your listeners know that you know, Meb won the 2004 silver medal at the Olympics and then the 2009 New York Marathon and then the 2014 Boston Marathon the year after the bombing. Uh, probably his, the victory he's most known for. And I had known Bob for a while because uh, I, I covered Meb and written about him. But I never knew that there was this backstory, and I never knew exactly who he was. I knew he, had, he was a coach who had had some success. But I got invited to a, a documentary that one of his former runners had made about him. And it was mostly about him and Meb, but it also mentioned this group of runners in the 60s and 70s that he coached named the Hummel Toads uh, back in San Diego. And those guys were really his lab rats. They had these sort of scraggly beards and long hair. Uh, they look kind of like the Doobie Brothers or the Eagles or you know, some <laughs> other fringy band back then. But that's really what running was in that era. And that's an era that I've always been fascinated with and I've always wanted to write about in some way. And then in talking to Bob and learning how he was such a, such a huge figure, both in that era, because he led the Hummel toes to the 1976 National Cross Country Championships back when that was just about the biggest race outside of the Boston Marathon. He led them to that. And then he sort of led this renaissance of American distance running in the 2000s. He's really the only guy that's sort of been there throughout the sort of birth, downfall and rebirth of American long distance running. And his theories are so essential that we don't even recognize them as theories anymore. They're just sort of what you obviously do. Mm. Uh, it's that mix of both speed and distance, but also what we have now come to know as the tempo run or the threshold run. And that's, what, that's where the book's title comes from, which is Running to the Edge, which is where Bob wanted his runners to be. When he came on the scene, there were essentially two schools of, of thought. To the extent that there was any thought whatsoever uh, <laughs> with training, 
there was two schools of thought. One was the Eastern Europeans who did all those crazy intervals, just quarter miles and half miles over and over and over and over again. And the other was the Lydiard school uh, of, you know, just lots and lots of volume. Lydiard was the New Zealander, uh, one of the first guys who sort of created the word jogging uh, and had the first adult running clubs. And he was all about volume and train, but don't strain. And Larson comes along and his idea is, oh, he has two questions. One is why do the intervals have to be so short and why do the long runs have to be so slow? Mm-hmm. And what was at the heart of that was the idea of trying to make your body comfortable with being uncomfortable, make your, both your body and your mind comfortable with being uncomfortable and pushing it to go hard for three miles one day and then five miles another day and then eight miles the next day. Because right on that edge where one click faster, you're going to be out of breath and exhausted and one click slower, you're going to be maybe a little bit too comfortable. Right on that edge, that really is sort of where the magic can happen. Yeah, I think living when we do, we pretty much take it for granted that we have great resources to turn to about training practices. You know, there's books such as yours, there's running camps, internet sites. But like you're saying, when Bob Larson started coaching back in, I think, the early 60s, there wasn't really much information. Like you said, it was either hard, short intervals or kind of long and easy. And so it sounds like his coaching approach was kind of to almost, I mean, kind of marry him, but also change um, the approach as well. Yeah, I think the best way to describe it is he sort of offered a third way. He, he triangulated the two, and he really sort of brought together these differing schools of thought. Because like you said, there really was not very much thought going into this. Running, distance running was the ultimate fringe activity. <laughs> it was very countercultural. I mean, it's the reason why the hero of early running in America is, is Steve Prefontaine, because he had the long hair and the mustache, and it was a rebellious activity. There was nothing, there were few things you could do that were crazier than wake up on a Saturday morning and go run 20 miles, you know, through the parks and streets of your neighborhood. It just wasn't done except by a very small handful of people. And I'd like to think that that spirit is really still there in the sport today in the sense that it's still kind of a rebellious thing, even though it's very mainstream, to go run 20 miles tomorrow. Uh, We haven't had to run that kind of distance for thousands of years. And we used to have to run to to get our food. Uh, But we haven't had to do that for a very, very long time. So the idea that you would still do that, I think, um, touches something very primal and elemental within us, even though it's very much counter to this modern society where you get picked up at whenever you want and you get any kind of cheeseburger delivered to you at any hour of the day. It goes against all that. And it's a way of saying, no, I, I, I do something harder than that. I live in a different way. So Bob Larson, he kind of took these misfit runners from San Diego area, these Hamul Toads, they call themselves, and turned them into national champions. It's a great underdog story. But how was he able to do that? Like what kind of workouts was he making these kids do? What kind of drills? What did that look like? Early on, it was as simple as, and it all starts with, you know, a high school and junior college team, first Monta Vista High School and then Grossmont Junior College. 
And early on, you know, the weird thing that he was having them do was run on trails, get off the track to become liberated. And he would have them start out easy, you know, first couple, three miles, go easy. They had to stay. He would run with them. So he was sort of building that trust equation with them. And they would go out and they'd run three miles and then they'd start to hammer. So maybe they were going on a 15 mile run, but within that 15 mile run, there was a 10 mile segment that where everybody was just going all out. And they were just trying to not beat each other, but stay with each other. And, you know, that was the other essential thing. In addition to this running, this idea of running to your edge and doing those threshold runs that are sort of middle distance, I would I'd say, uh, you know, if you think about 20 and up is really long and, you know, six and lower is, is kind of short, you would build in these, these eight, 10, sometimes 15 mile segments where you're really going hard. Mm. And so that's, that's one essential thing. The second essential thing was the idea that they were going as a group. That was not done so much, certainly back then when there were very few runners. And also wasn't done that much in the 80s and 90s when American running really sort of dropped off the map. Uh, we, we sort of glamorized this, the idea of the loneliness of the long distance runner. But Bob's idea was, no, this is a, tw- this is a team sport. And we race as individuals, but we run together. Mm. And we also, you know, sometimes we are also always racing as a team for the most part uh, or trying to. And that was really a a very, very strong and important thing to him because his idea was that, you know, on the day when you're feeling a little bad and you want to slack off, it's a lot easier to do that if you don't have a pack that you're trying to keep up with. So it was very important to have these people run together and it was a way to sort of keep them interested in each other. And he just believed very strongly that we are social animals. And I think the third sort of essential tenet is the idea of the make your own destiny, that how you're born and how much money you have and who your sponsor is, none of that is your destiny. Your destiny is what you make of it. And that becomes really, really important when he he wants to lead a group of Americans against the East Africans in the early 2000s. But but it was just as important back in the early 70s when he's got these guys from San Diego, guys like Ed Mendoza and Kirk Pfeffer and Tom Hunt and Dave Harper, guys who are very good runners, but they're not what I would say the fancy runners. You know, they're not they're not in the Colorado Track Club or Oregon or um, well, Tom Tom Lux did did spend a couple of years at Oregon, but then he moved back down to San Diego. And, you know, they show up at that 1976 race. They don't have matching sweatpants and they've got this singlet that has a snarky looking toad across <laughs> them. Uh, there's no there's no Nike swoosh on their on their shirt. And they didn't let that bother them. They knew the work that they've been doing and they were going to run. They were going to run as hard as anyone was that day. Of course, this is the 70s and travel is a bit different. But the running club, the, the toads didn't have a lot of money or big sponsors. So they get to... Philadelphia where this track meet is and Bob the car that he rented wasn't big enough and they had one extra runner so they had to put that guy in the trunk <laughs> yeah that, I mean, yeah doesn't that, that, that probably wouldn't fly so well today with what we know about it but that sort of that, that sort of captures everything uh, about this team uh, yeah. he, he miscounted he brought an extra guy because he was a little worried it was a, he had a, one of his runners uh, a freshman runner at Grossmont Junior College 
was pretty good and really wanted to come along. And in addition to that, he was worried that a couple of his guys were running the NCAAs a few days uh, the week before, and he was worried that they might not be in great shape. So I figured I'll bring an extra guy, but then he uh, forgot to do his calculations. So they had an old, an old sedan that they rented when they got in Philadelphia, but uh, just eight guys, one coach wasn't going to fit. So one guy popped in the trunk for the 15 minute <laughs> ride over to the start line. Or in a hotel, half of them got beds and half of them got the floor. It was pretty much yeah. just... According to rank. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what running was back in those days. And in a lot of ways, I mean, the scale is different, but it's not that much fancier. Even the best runners in America, the best distance runners, really any distance, they do not lead fancy lives. Hmm. Uh, they're struggling along like a lot of people are. They've got some sponsorships, but it's never enough. Uh, and They're not getting like Tiger Woods style $10 million deals from Nike. No, this is not. And thankfully, we, you know, what you saw this year was a bunch of women saying enough is enough. We, we don't want to be penalized for going on maternity. We want to, we want maternity leave for crying out loud. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that sort of shows you how far behind this sport has, has been in terms of finances uh, for athletes. It's better than it used to be. Thank God there's there's no more reason for runners to have to collect brown envelopes with cash in them uh, before races. And maybe if they didn't perform so well, have that money cut in half. But uh, it, it still has a ways to go. And in some ways, it's nice because they're still normal people like the rest of us. But you know, these are the best in the world. And you'd hope they'd be treated as such. Yeah. So you mentioned that in the 80s and 90s, long distance running kind of fell off the map here in America. You know, prior to that, in the 70s, we had Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers and Alberto Salazar and these these legends. And then 80s and 90s, what happened here in the States? Well, I think two things happened. Uh, the main thing that happened is Alberto Salazar. And uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with him, he was, he was basically the best runner the country had ever produced won three straight New York marathons. He won Boston. He was winning everything. And it was sort of a foregone conclusion that he was going to win the marathon at the 84 Olympics. But about a year before that, he basically ran into a wall. Uh, He started to get injured. He couldn't get his body right. And he never really ran fast again. He came in 15th at that marathon in LA. um, And he just did this very quick fade his career was basically over by the time he was 26, hmm. which in fact is right when you should be hitting your peak. And I think much of the distance running world took a very false lesson from that because no one trained harder than Alberto. I mean, you're talking about somebody who nearly ran himself to death. A couple hmm. times, actually. <laughs> right, in the Falmouth race. And, you know, he would run with 104 fever and he just, nobody trained harder than he did. And this theory developed that you only had a certain number of steps in your legs before your body would fall apart. So don't waste those steps on the roads when you're training. Save them for save them for race day. And you know it's, it can sound okay, but there was no science behind it. Uh, and when you saw what happened was people started running only about even the best runners running only like 90 miles a week, and it just that just wasn't going to fly. Uh, I mean, you, to be an elite runner now, you're basically running somewhere around between 120 and 140 miles a week. 
and you're running hard. You're putting in some hard miles during those training cycles. The thing about distance running, the thing that makes it so great, but also crazy is that there's just no shortcuts. You need some talent, but even with talent, you have to put in a tremendous, tremendous amount of work. And so Americans weren't, they just weren't doing the work. And when the results didn't happen, when they stopped winning medals, uh, all the shoe company money followed where the medals were. And that was with the sprinters uh, and the quarter milers. And so that, so those people got lots of funding. And so the distance runners were sort of left to train on their own. And Bob Larson will tell you, that's just a formula for disaster. So it was in 2000 when he was getting ready to, to retire from UCLA. He was the track coach at UCLA for about 20 years and produced a lot of national championships and national champions and gold medalists, but largely not focusing on distance runners because college running, you win points and you win championships with thoroughbreds, guys who are quarter miles who can drop down and do relays and do 200s and do triple jumps and long jumps. And he had sort of taken his eye off the distance running ball for the most part. But he had this one great runner, Meb Keflesky. And when he was getting ready to retire, he wanted to create an atmosphere where Meb could be as good as he could be. And that was basically recreating what he had with the Hummel Toads, but doing it a little bit differently and doing it at elevation. Because his idea, and this is at a time when everyone thinks that the Kenyans and Ethiopians they're starting to come up with these sort of pseudoscience theories that their Achilles tendons are longer, that their muscle fibers are somehow differently, that they evolve differently on the Serengeti. And Bob just says, no, that's a load of crap. They're just doing what I did with my guys in the 70s in San Diego, and they're doing it at elevation. They're just working harder than we are. So we're going to get a group together. We're going to go to elevation. They end up going to Mammoth and... Uh, Lo and behold, they uh, they get two of the six Olympic Olympic marathon medals in 2004. Meb and Dina Castor. Yes, both really good runners and really good people too. We've had them both on the podcast. Yes, yeah, they're amazing people. So Coach Bob, he sees the Kenyan runners, the East African runners, and he he says, no, they're not just you know genetically more adapted to this. It's because they're running in groups and they're training at elevation, and we can duplicate that here. And they're doing temp and they, and you know he had studied what their regimens were. They're, those are not Lydiard School runners. <laughs> they strain when they train. They run to the edge. They they go to the edge. They run hard for long periods, and that's what we really sort of need to do. I mean, every the funny thing about running is whether you're a superstar or you're just trying to get a Boston qualifying time. Or if you're trying to just get a new PR, there's really only one way to do it. You have to do some sort of combination of long runs, tempo runs, and a little bit of speed work. That's really what everybody does. Now, within each individual, those those plans can vary uh, how much you do, how much your body can take. But those are sort of the three basic elements that are in every serious runner's training plan these days. Uh, so that was what he wanted to make sure to incorporate. And he really dug into the science and I think probably was responsible for a lot of what we take for granted now as accepted fact, looking at blood work and you know measuring all these things and having his runners, it was like their full-time job, the, the running, the eating, the sleeping, all of that. The fascinating thing to me about digging into the science is that back in the 60s, he was 
one of the first guys to start paying attention to heart rates uh, and pulse rate, taking, taking his runner's pulses in the middle of workouts and comparing them and seeing how their efficiency improved. Uh, that was really one of his first most revolutionary ideas because this is at a time when the conventional wisdom was that if you were to strain your heart after the age of about 35, you would risk a catastrophic cardiac event. Uh, you, you would very likely die. And Bob fortunately went to San Diego State and there was a researcher there named Fred Cash who was doing some of the first adult cardiac studies. And he was having people come down to the San Diego State track a couple nights a week and actually run. And he was testing their heart rates and Bob started doing research with him. And their theory was the heart is a muscle like any other muscle. And if you train it, it will get stronger. Again, that sounds so obvious and simple today, but back then that was you know, virtual sacrilege and they had to prove that. The reason Bob believed in it so much is because he was a runner himself and he actually liked running on the roads and he liked pushing himself. He sort of naturally got drawn to doing these tempo runs because he loved that feeling that we all experience when we're having just a great morning or a great evening and our feet aren't quite touching the ground and we're in this sort of flow state. And what he realized was that the more he pushed himself, the easier it got to get to that flow state. And the better his, his heart was feeling, the stronger he was. So that was the sort of cutting edge of science back then. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, the altitude training really became the cutting edge. And they were, they were living at Mammoth, which is about between eight and 9,000 feet, depending on where you are. But it also had great access so they could drop down pretty quickly to 4,000 and 5,000 feet to train uh, or even go up to 9,000 or 10,000 feet to train if they really wanted to push themselves hard one day and torture themselves. It was a whole puzzle that he was working out in terms of how hard do we go this day, how high can we do it, how much we can, can we push it. But the really important thing was that they were sleeping at 8,000 feet every night because that's when your body produces the red blood cells. And he was also doing a lot of collaboration with Coach Joe Vigil uh, with the Mammoth Track Club, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, a, a lot of this research that he did, and one of the great things about Bob is that he's really good at knowing what he doesn't know, and he knew that elevation was going to be the key to it all. So he called up Joe Vigil and he said, "I want to do this thing. I want to bring us back." you're the smartest guy in the country about elevation. I need you to do this with me. And Joe himself was getting ready to retire from uh, Adam State in Colorado, where he won, you know, 15,000 championships. Uh, and so he joined him in Mammoth. And that's where they, they their sort of combination of coaching together. That's what really produced uh, so much success. That's where the magic started happening. <laughs> I know. What a great collaboration. It was a great collaboration and a couple of them really important things they did. They were totally public about this. They weren't secretive. You want if you wanted to know what happened what was going on in Mammoth, you just all you had to do was call them or come up there and they'd open their training logs to you. They just wanted to share the knowledge. That was really important. But they also established that idea that we take for granted today of a training group. And, you know, they got some shoe company money. They got money from Running USA, which is the consortium of road races. After the shoe companies saw 
the success that these groups could have. That's why you now have, you know, Brooks Hansen. That's why you have the Oregon Project and Jerry Schumacher's group up in uh, up in Beaverton. Uh, and it's why you have Hoka and Flagstaff. It, it's what spawned all of these groups that support runners that are fast. So after they come out of college, they can pursue the career. And people are being inspired because running is coming back into the national, long distance running is coming back into the national consciousness. It kind of inspires the second running boom, even though maybe we don't feel like we can totally relate to the elite runners. We still get a lot of inspiration from them and still have that same drive and willing to work hard to, you know, push the edge a little bit. Certainly. Uh, once, you, you know, success pretty much spawns success. Uh, people have asked me why, you know, why we've had the, why, especially on the women's side, uh, people we're seeing Shalane and, and Des Linden winning these things, winning these races in their mid thirties. And well, first of all, it takes a long time and they, they've been up there for a while. So it was, they were going to win one eventually or a few of them eventually. But if you think back, to their early 20s when they were deciding what they were going to do with their running lives or if they were even going to pursue a running life. That puts them around the same time period of Dina Castor winning a bronze medal at the Olympics and then winning Chicago and winning London. And you see that success happening and that can make a big difference with a lot of people. And it helps that all these people are just really nice, just gracious people, too. I mean, we've, I got to meet Meb in February of this year. I get the impression that Coach Bob is the same way. Yeah, very. I mean, I'm sure, like any sport, this one has, has a couple of jerks here and there. Um, but yes, I, I think they they believe in the mission. I think a lot of them understand that you know, for them, running was a job, but it was also a, a passion. In, in a lot of ways, it didn't necessarily feel like a, a job. There's only two sports where the athletes that I've dealt with, if they didn't have to run on a certain day, they might just run anyway. Or if they didn't have to, I should say, if they didn't have to do their sport on a certain day, they'd do it anyway. Uh, skiers and runners are the only two uh, that I've ever met. I, I don't know a lot of golfers who just go play around a golf for fun. I mean, it's, it's their job. Uh, but you know, Meb retired from competition a couple of years ago. I ran into him in the ninth mile of the New York marathon last year. He, he was running for a charity group. It's just sort of what he loves to do. Um, he's running an hour, you know, he's running an hour behind the leaders, but he's still doing it. So it, it's a part of his life. And Dean is the same way. And Joan Benoit Samuelson is, 61 years old and she'll trying to break age group records and you know, nobody's nobody's paying her to break those age group records, but she's, she's going at it. So it's just, it's just a part of who they are. So that's a, it's a neat thing. And, and, and like I said, skiers are the same way. I won't, I, I'll never forget. I had a phone interview with Ted Ligeti once and it was the morning of one of his races and there was just a huge storm. And so the race had been canceled. And I asked him what he was doing. He said, well, I'm looking around for a pair of powder skis. So I can, uh, so I can go hit the, hit the, the fresh powder. powder. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's the only other group of athletes that, that I know who does that. So we're going to be coming up on the Olympic year next year um, to Tokyo. Are you going to be able to go cover some of the games and in particular uh, runners at all? 
Yeah, I lead our Olympic coverage here at the New York Times. Um, nice. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a real labor of love to be <laughs> able to do something like that. It's a great opportunity for the sport to sort of be front and center. I still don't think they do a great job of sort of presenting the competition. So as, as, as certainly as a spectator who's there in the stadium, it's probably a lot better to watch on TV in some ways, hmm. except for right. a couple of events. Um, I think what's fascinating about Olympic distance, I mean, it's particularly the marathon. It's a little, been a little less so on the 5,000 and 10,000, but particularly on the marathon, it's that rare mar- big time marathon that happens in the heat of the summer and weird things happen in the heat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it sort of as a way of taking a, a certain amount of just pure speed out of the equation. I mean, I don't have any, look, Elliot Kipchoge is going to win the marathon. I don't, I don't <laughs> if something catastrophic happens, right? Right. Unless somebody breaks his leg, he's going to, he's going to win the marathon. He's going to win the race. Uh, have you had the chance to meet him and interview him or anything? Yeah. He's, a, he's a, you know, and he's kind of the, the fascinating thing with Kipchoge is that not only is he this phenomenal runner, but he's also kind of a, he's kind of like a Zen master. He speaks in like these very, sort of simple Yoda-like phrases. Um, He's very quotable. (laughs) Yeah, he is. I don't think he intentionally is speaking in sound bites, but he has these sort of pearls of wisdom that come out about training. Um, So he's he's maybe probably the most dominant athlete in any sport um, or better at his event than anyone is at their event in the world right now. So, but, you know, behind him... I think no one's really sure where Galen Rupp is in terms of his injury because he hasn't run so long. I, I would bet on him having a good trials and making it to Tokyo. I think Scott Fauble is a terrific young runner with great commitment and uh, has a really high ceiling. So uh, that on the men's side and on the women's side, it's going to be an absolute battle for the women to make those teams. There is a lot of talent. and a lot of depth. Yeah, a lot of depth. And there's no doubt in my mind that you're not going to make that women's team unless you're finishing that what is a tough course in Atlanta. I would bet somewhere, I don't know, 228 or something like that, 229 at the, at the, at the most, which is, is pretty fast for a trials race. Yeah. So I guess one final question. What do you think that a um, everyday runner like me? can get out of uh, getting a copy of your book, Running to the Edge? What takeaways for just a kind of a middle-of-the-pack runner? Well, I've heard a couple, of, I've, I mean, more than a couple of things. I've, heard, I've gotten a lot of feedback on this book, which has been tremendously satisfying from everyday runners all over the country. And there's a couple of things I keep hearing over and over. One is that it really made them want to go running. It really made them feel like they would stop reading and it sort of touched them in a very visceral way. So I feel like it's the kind of book that, you know, will, that it can make you love running more, make, mm-hmm. not only make you a little bit faster, but make you love running more. And that to me is as important as the speed aspect of it. But beyond that, what I hope is that it's the larger idea of how important it can be and what can happen when you push yourself to be a little uncomfortable, to do the thing that scares you 
and to understand that for the most part in life, the good stuff doesn't really happen by playing it safe. The good stuff happens uh, when you challenge yourself and go outside your comfort zone. And that's true when you're running and it's also true when you're not running. And so what my biggest hope would be is that this could you know, make you believe that you can work a little harder and get a little, be a little better tomorrow than you were yesterday. But I also hope that it can make you think about how you approach the rest of your life. The idea of it's okay to do something you're afraid of. It's okay to be a part of a team. Like you don't have to be the superstar. Rely on the people you love. Rely on the teammate, on your teammates and lean on them. Run with a buddy. It's a great thing about running. You don't need like a 10 person group. If you and a buddy meet for a run tomorrow at seven, you have a running group. So there's that aspect to it. And then just, you know, believing that you make your own destiny, that uh, you can be a little better tomorrow than you were yesterday. And uh, if you believe that, you, you get out of bed each morning with a little different bounce in your step. Well, I can definitely say all those things are true. I, yes. It was a very inspiring book. And I think it made me really appreciate where we are um, as runners right now. Just the groundbreakers like Coach Bob Larson and all of the elite runners, of course, who have worked so hard and provided those sources of inspiration. So, yeah, people need to go get a copy of this book. It'll help fuel your next run, <laughs> mentally fuel it, that is. That's right. Well, great. Uh, I really appreciate your support. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. The great thing about writing this book and publishing this book has been the opportunity to sort of commune with runners about running and life, just sort of what we do anyway. And we made a lot of great friends already and hope to make a lot more. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matthew Futterman. Everyone, definitely go check out the book, Running to the Edge. It's an entertaining read and provides a lot of great history and look into our sport and kind of how we got to where we are today. And I think even if you're outside of the U.S., you'll enjoy reading these stories because Coach Larson, he definitely embraced so many different running traditions around the world and became this mad scientist, you know, learning from the Europeans, learning from the Africans, just learning wherever he could to uh, help his athletes. Well, before we get into the quick tip, we'd like to tell you guys about the Three Bridges Marathon in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's on December 28th, and throughout the month of October, listeners to this podcast can get a discount. If you want to go run a scenic marathon in Little Rock, it takes place actually on the Arkansas River Trail. You go over three majestic bridges. It's a USATF certified course. It's a Boston qualifier. Of course, it is in December, but there'll be heated tents and refreshments at the start and the finish the race is put on by a dedicated group of runners in central Arkansas who took it over after the founder, Jacob Wells, passed away in 2014. But they're carrying on Jacob's spirit by being encouraging and supportive to all runners. So the race is called the Jacob Wells Three Bridges Marathon. You can read Jacob's story, learn more about the race, register for it, and get uh, actually 10 bucks off. Go over to threebridgesmarathon.com and use the code MTA for the discount all through the month of October. And Jacob's sister, Heidi, is actually in the academy and also is a wonderful person. And we heard about this race through her. So yeah, if 
you're in the Little Rock area or within driving distance and you want to put another marathon on your calendar on December 28th, kind of sneak one in right before the year ends. That's right. Head over to threebridgesmarathon.com and use the code MTA for a $10 discount. We'd also like to thank Tiger Balm Active for sponsoring this episode. As runners, we work hard and we want our muscles to perform at their very best. And I know I don't like to let sore muscles slow me down and keep me from doing my workouts. So Tiger Balm Active can be so helpful to relieve muscle pain in hard to reach areas. They have what's called the Tiger Balm Active Muscle Spray. You spray it on yourself after training. It's non-greasy and easy to take if you're traveling to a marathon or if you're traveling for work and you need to throw something in your bag to help your recovery. They also have other great workout products like Tiger Balm Active Muscle Rub, and they also have Tiger Balm Active Muscle Gel, which is great for post-workout. Keep your muscles happy during your marathon training by using Tiger Balm Active products. You can go to your local Rite Aid, Walgreens, or CVS store today to pick it up. That's Tiger Balm Active, available at your local Rite Aid, Walgreens, or CVS. All right. Well, one more very simple thing that we want to leave you guys with, and that is a mantra to get you through those hard miles. That's right. We talked a little bit about how important the mental aspect of your training is going hand in hand with your physical training. And so a mantra that I really love is you can do hard things. I think sometimes we get in the thick of training. It starts feeling really hard because it is hard. We all know it takes a lot of time to juggle your schedule, to make time for runs and cross training, to eat to support your goals, to implement proper recovery, and of course, to push your body through workouts. Um, So it's important to remember that if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. But of course, as long distance runners, we don't want to be like everyone else. We want to take the road less traveled. And I think one of the reasons why long distance running is so satisfying is because it can be hard. We really don't appreciate things as much if we don't have to work hard for them. And so I just thought this would be a great reminder for people who are in the midst of the challenges of training or even as they're going to go into their fall races, is that you can do hard things. I've been telling myself this lately, and of course, this is what I'm going to tell my kids the next time they complain that something is hard, (laughs) because we need to realize that we can be resilient and do hard things in life. That's right. The sooner we figure that out, the better, right? (laughs) That's right. There was something really, I thought, clever posted in the, our little group for members recently. And this is by Manakshi, who we actually gave her a shout out because she just finished her marathon in Cape Town. But before her marathon, she said she was really excited, nervous about the last 10K, but was looking for three words, only three words, to help her get through the last 10K. And I thought this was really a great idea. So here's what people had to say. We'll just read some of these for you guys. Mind over matter. Another one was can't quit now. Enjoy every second. Then this person named Angie Spencer said, a glorious struggle. (laughs) William says, keep on going. Then we have get after it, relentless forward progress, celebration of training. Just don't stop. (laughs) That's a good Good one. Keep moving forward. Here's mine. Grind it out. That's what it feels like to me. Just got to keep grinding out those miles. That's right. We've got a former math teacher in the group. He says, the final exam. (laughs) (laughs) so think about three words that would describe it for you whatever it takes keep repeating it in your mind to push through that last 10k get up that hill or whatever you're going to face in your race you can do hard things that's right 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. We'd love to connect with you guys too over on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Marathon Academy as well as Twitter. And thanks to everyone who left the podcast a positive review. We've got over a thousand now just in iTunes and a five-star rating. So thank you for all those wonderful five-star reviews. And if there's any way we can help you in your training, feel free to reach out. We have a contact form on our website, marathontrainingacademy.com. So that's it for now. Always remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.